Hello and welcome to Runnymede Radio. We are pleased to be joined in this episode by Dr. Gerard Kennedy, Assistant Professor at the University of Manitoba, Robson School of Law. Dr. Kennedy and our National Director, Mark Mancini, discussed the rule of law implications of the recent Supreme Court of Canada decisions in Atlantic Lottery and Nevson, both of which were cited by the federal court in the recent dismissal of a charter claim brought by several young people against the federal government regarding climate change. This conversation will be of particular interest to those interested in motions to strike and the rule of law issues that can arise in private law jurisprudence. As always, we ask you to stay tuned for future Running Need Radio episodes next month. Well, welcome, loyal listeners, to this episode of Running Need Radio. My name is Mark Mancini, and I'm the National Director of the Running Need Society. I uh, hope you all are having a good October. Today, we're very happy to have with us uh, Professor Gerard Kennedy from uh, Robson Hall uh, at the University of Manitoba. Professor Kennedy is a uh, an expert in civil procedure, administrative law, among other things. And we're, we're really excited today to talk about uh, an issue in the private law realm that we think has important implications for the rule of law in Canada. And that issue is the uh, motions to strike and particularly the Supreme Court's recent cases in the Nevson and Atlantic Lottery cases. So uh, with that short introduction aside, welcome, Professor Kennedy. We're very happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Mark. I'm very happy to be here. That's great. So let's start maybe at a very, if we're talking about motions to strike, let's start at a very high level of abstraction and just set out some preliminaries. Can you describe for our listeners what a motion to strike actually is and perhaps how it works uh, in practice? Well, it, it's a procedural tool that can be used for a few different reasons, but regardless of your reason for using it, it practically means dismiss all or part of a pleading, usually a statement of claim or a statement of defense, because it's somehow deficient. Um, there are a few reasons that the court may do so in response to a motion to strike, some of which are totally uncontroversial, such as if the claim has insufficient particularity. If, for example, a statement of claim says the defendant defamed the plaintiff on January 3rd, 2020, full stop, that doesn't let the defendant know how to respond. Mm. Um, the usual remedy, however, if a pleading is deficient in that way, is to order more particulars from the party who has written the uh, deficient pleading. Another reason that portions of a pleading might be struck is because they're irrelevant or abusive, including details about a party's character, for instance, unless they are directly related to the claim, could be struck for being improper and irrelevant. Again, however, the usual remedy there is to not to strike out the claim entirely. Mm. Uh, you might also use a motion to strike because the claim is an abusive process. Sometimes parties claim absurd things that isn't that common, but it can, affer uh, can occur. More common, a party seeks to relitigate something that's already been determined. N none of those are very controversial. Where this tends to be most interesting and most controversial, and where there may be some recent movement on the law, is when the claim does not disclose a cause of action, or less frequently, the defense does not disclose a defense. You have to assume everything in the pleading is true. 
But if everything the plaintiff said is true, and it still wouldn't result in a cause of action being made out, the claim can be struck. Uh, as an innocuous example, a few years ago, the Ontario Court of Appeal dealt with a nuisance claim, numbered company versus Chrysler, where the plaintiff alleged that their ability to enjoy their property was impaired by a previous owner's failure to remediate the land. The court pointed out that an essential element of the nuisance tort is that whatever causes interference with the land emanate not from the plaintiff's land. So on the plaintiff's own theory of the case, it couldn't make out a nuisance claim. Where this becomes really controversial, however, is where the plaintiff, or less frequently the defendant, is trying to have a new cause of action recognized or to somehow otherwise seriously amend what the law is. That's a high-level overview in any ways. Yeah, sounds good. So, it, it you know, this uh, it sounds like motions to strike uh, can shorten uh, or shorten a, a case that would other or end a case that would otherwise be abusive or maybe just a waste of time. So I guess that leads into my next question. How can a motion to strike help facilitate access to justice? We're very concerned with access to justice uh, these days. So is the Supreme Court. Are motions to strike tools in the arsenal to facilitate access to justice? Well, in a word, yes. And I'll just like to flag here that access to justice can mean different things in different circumstances. Yes. But it certainly includes the ability of the courts to resolve cases quickly and with minimal financial expense. And if you strike a pleading because it's deficient and the pleading becomes better as a result, it narrows and guides the claim, allowing it to be prosecuted more fairly. And even when a motion to strike strikes the claim entirely, um, first, it results in the resolution of this claim, which is very fair for the defendant, who now no longer needs to go through an expensive and protracted trial. Uh, but it also unclogs the courts, allowing other users to use the resources that a claim that was destined to fail uh, otherwise would have uh, would have occupied. Um, both of those reasons really accord with a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014 called Reiniak and Malden, which mm. held that we need to get away from this idea of a paradigm of the trial being the only way to have procedural justice, that there are times where that's really not necessary uh, and can frankly be wasteful. Okay, so that, that, makes, that makes sense. So one of the concerns that we have in the running society is the the rule of law and how doctrines and court decisions either uphold or do violence to the rule of law. So, um, and in the private law realm, we talk about this less, but I, I'm really interested in this question. How can a motion to strike uphold the rule of law and, uh, in in particular cases? Okay. One is by facilitating access to justice in the ways we talked about. I mean, that includes having more cases actually adjudicated in the courts rather than be resolved through either not resolved at all or by some kind of other suboptimal means. Uh, the Supreme Court talked about the connection between access to justice and the rule of law in the 2014 trial lawyer's decision. Second, however, and more particular to a motion to strike, one of the requirements of the rule of law is that there be law. Mm. Uh, if the court can speak to what the law is on the motion to strike, that helps litigants and the entire legal profession beyond the particular case um, to order their affairs. And it develops the common law, 
which is frequently not otherwise developed as cases disappear into the ether and are settled, perhaps mm-hmm. in an unprincipled way in the face of legal uncertainty. And the ability to encourage principled settlement by resolving questions of law is also a reason to employ a motion to strike. So it's really through resolving legal issues that could otherwise exist in a state of perpetual uncertainty. That's where motions to strike really can make a difference for the rule of law. And I commend a 2014 article by Stephen Patel and Matthew Lerner that discusses about this issue in a lot of depth. Hmm. Yeah. So if listeners are interested in this issue, particularly of the rule of law, that sounds like a good article. So we've talked about some of the benefits of motions to strike. We've we talked about the access to justice component, the rule of law component. Are there any disadvantages to this procedural tool? Well, in a word, yes. First, if it's unsuccessful, it delays the resolution of the action and therefore is very much an impediment to access to justice. And there is a high threshold to use it, and there should be. It has to be plain and obvious that there's no cause of action. I think we might talk about this a bit later. I would posit that something can be plain and obvious, um, but also potentially close. Uh, And particularly because no evidence is admissible on a motion to strike, you can only have a motion to strike, therefore, in a question of pure law. And, and I'd say that's a good thing. There are other summary ways to resolve the issue if the facts are in dispute. But we need to assume that the facts in the pleading are true. Um, and this arguably brings the court into the realm of answering hypothetical questions in the face of posited but unproven facts. Now, answering hypothetical questions isn't forbidden in Canada. You can think of our reference cases. I, I mm. think society is interested in constitutionalism, mm-hmm. but it's arguably not ideal either. Now, frequently the defendant is content to accept the plaintiff's facts for the purposes of the motion to strike. But still, th- that issue about hypothetical questions is a concern. Another disadvantage is that if the court decides a particular question on the motion to strike, there may still need to be a summary judgment motion or a trial to see whether the facts support the plaintiff's claim. Um, and then you've essentially delayed the action. Maybe you can prompt settlement, but you've thrown in an extra procedural step. So sometimes you should really perhaps only use it if you think it will resolve the action, either by dismissing it or prompting the defendant to say, all right, uh, then we're going to settle. Um, and there, there's also another school of thought that I'm not sure I accept, but I see where it's coming from, that even if you accept all the facts as true, Seeing them come in through live action or affidavit evidence adds something important, something empathetic. There's there's something to that. Something is lost by accepting the facts from the pleadings rather than see them um, in court. Uh, I just am uncertain about how much mm. the Supreme Court in the Reiniak case suggested that you know we we can't let perfect procedural justice be an impediment to very good. Um, procedural justice. And I'll just also add, I can see how seeing the evidence may also be more important than the court deciding not to change the law. It could see, all right, I was tempted on the pleadings, but now I realize it would be impractical. Um, But if the plaintiff's trying to change the law, puts their best version of their facts forward in their pleadings, and the court still holds it would be inappropriate to grant the plaintiff's claim, I'm not sure the extent to which seeing the evidence in person uh, is all that helpful. It's helpful, but at, at what cost? It seems to delay resolution of the claim and put the law into a state of uncertainty for longer than it may have to be. 
Hmm. So uh, you mentioned changing the law, and I think that leads uh, interestingly into, into the next question. Many of us are concerned with law reform these days. Can you describe the way motions to strike uh, interact with attempts to change the positive law, if at all? Well, this is where a lot of the controversy arises. Um, historically, the courts have held that novelty alone is not a reason to strike a claim. And insofar as that goes, novelty alone is not a reason to strike a claim. I agree with that, and I, I think almost everyone does. And I don't think that recent events that we're coming to disagree with that either. Otherwise, we never get new legal doctrine. Though there's some, certainly seems to be some advocacy and potentially some case law out there that would imply that novelty is a reason not to strike a claim, that it's important that a novel claim be heard with the evidence. And that's a subtle but important distinction um, from recognizing that it's not a sufficient condition to strike the claim to suggesting that it should be a standalone reason to bar striking the claim. And I guess that's really where the cases earlier this year step in to try to resolve this issue. Can you strike a novel claim? Yeah, so that's so maybe let's jump to those. Let's jump to those cases. Uh, again, the, the two cases that we are talking about today are the Nevsun, uh, the Nevsun case and the Atlantic Lottery decision. And about, I think the Nevsun case got a lot of attention uh, in the in the in the sort of the Twitter legal sphere. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit about maybe tell us a little bit about the cases and do they portend a potentially different approach from the Supreme Court? on motions to strike than the one, than the sort of traditional position you've described thus far? The short answer to your question is maybe, and, it, and it's complicated. And I'd just like to state at the outset, an entire podcast could be dedicated to either one of these cases simply on their merits. Mm. Um, one on international human rights law, the other on class actions law, and yeah. various interesting private law causes of action and remedies. I'm going to have to explain what each case was about to some extent to just explain why the motions to strike were or were not used. But I'll just flag, some of that nuance will be lost as we get to some of the procedural issues. Um, Nevson came out first, and there was a switch in among one of the judges' was willingness to use a motion to strike between the two of them. So I'll describe Nevson first. Um, I'd also just like to thank at the outset uh, one of my students here at Robson Hall, Madison Laval, for some research assistance here. And if you want more details on Nevson, a lot has been written about it. Mm. Um, Malcolm Rogue of the Harvard Kennedy School has written an interesting article about it. And there was a really good episode of the Stereo Decisis podcast from earlier this year where David Quiet was a guest. Um, so with all those caveats, uh, let's try to describe it briefly. This was a lawsuit in BC against a Canadian mining company for actions that took place in Eritrea. The plaintiffs allege that they were conscripted into the Eritrean military and essentially forced to work as slaves, including at a mine owned by this Canadian company, Nevson. They allege that they were subject to cruel and human and degrading treatment. If their claims are true, Eritrea has violated international human rights law in several different ways. Um, but as we're going to come to, they can't sue Eritrea in Canadian courts after they get to Canada, the plaintiffs commence a claim against Nevson in BC, alleging several domestic torts, including conversion, battery, unlawful confinement, and negligence. They also bring claims against the company for breaches of international human rights law. Nevson sought to strike these claims 
and the BC Supreme Court for a variety of reasons, two of which eventually get to the Supreme Court. And they're an interesting show and tell about the uses of motion to strike. Uh, the first ar argument Nevson made, uh, they say it's a purely legal argument that the claim should be struck, um, was based on something called the act of state doctrine. They allege that what the claims are actually doing is asking Canadian courts to scrutinize the legality of Eritrea's actions. And as a brief aside in international law, um, judging how sovereign states exercise their sovereignty can itself violate international law. Um, but the court unanimously decides we can decide this on the motion to strike. And mm -hmm. by a seven to two margin, decide not to strike the claim. Um, Justice Abella writes for seven, seven judges and holds that this doctrine simply isn't a part of Canadian law. It exists in England and Australia, but Canada's gone in another direction in this regard through a couple of doctrines. The first is the doctrine of state immunity, which is codified in Canada and prevents you from suing states for their actions as sovereign states. This is why Eritrea can't be sued. But the plaintiffs in this case weren't suing Eritrea. They were suing Nevson. Moreover, traditional conflicts of laws principles can remove cases from Canadian courts that the Canadian courts have no business adjudicating. Um, but this case had a Canadian defendant. So sovereign immunity and conflicts of laws taken together seek to redress the mischief that the act of state doctrine purportedly addresses. So there's no need to have the act of state doctrine in Canada. I mean, if you read her reasons, just Bella queries how much, whether the act of state doctrine causes more, uh, prevents more mischief than it causes, let's just say. Um, but the fact that Parliament has largely addressed this through the State Immunity Act implies the circumstances in which it hopes to address the concern. Uh, I know you're a bit of a statutory interpretation aficionado, and you know, principles of statutory interpretation can lead one to determine that Parliament intended to cover this concern through the State Immunity Act and in no other way. We shouldn't be reading in more exceptions through the common law, and we can resolve that on the motion to strike. Um, Justice Cote dissented, as she is sometimes known to do, uh, and Justice Mulder concurred with her. In her view, when the legality of a foreign state's actions is central to the litigation, it would impinge the executive's role to conduct foreign relations for the courts to resolve this. Um, I don't want to say there's nothing to that, but I'll display my bias and think that Justice Abella had the better of this argument uh, in light of what I alluded to before and the fact that um, there's always in extreme cases an ability to say that question is injusticiable. Here, however, there were legal principles at play. So we now know as a result of this case that the act of state doctrine is not a part of Canadian law. Mm. Um, does that make sense? Yes, that's, I think that's a good pricey of the, of the case. And it sounds uh, like, it sounds like it has important implications for sure. Yeah, and, and, and that's just one of the two issues um, that the court decided. The other and perhaps more interesting and controversial point where the court split 5-4 and prompted a vigorous partial dissent from Justice Brown and Roe is how Justice Bella also didn't strike the claims based on international human rights law, um, which she said might be part of custom international law and thus could be part of Canadian law. And Justice Bella strongly implied that there should be a new domestic tort or torch for such breaches uh, of grave international human rights norms. 
She acknowledged that it will be a question for the trial judge whether a corporation is bound by those international law norms. And also uh, the trial judge will have to decide the form of the proposed new torts and or whether they're even necessary. There may be existing adequate remedies in domestic law, but she concluded that these were not appropriate questions to decide on a motion to strike. She essentially said it's not plain and obvious that these claims will fail. And on that question, Justices Brown and Rowe um, agreed with Justices Cote and Moldaver um, that these particular claims should be struck. Um, they analyzed uh, Justice Bella's theory of the case and recognized that aspects of her theory were unobjectionable, such as that there are international prohibitions against the use of forced labor and cruel and human degrading treatment and torture, and that many of these have the status of use kogans and international law, which means that you can't have any exceptions to them. But they still point out, in their view anyways, that for these claims to succeed, several things would have to be true that they hold are quite clearly not true. Uh, these include the fact, or I'll say the proposition, that the corporations need to obey the relevant international law prohibitions. Justice Brown and Roe viewed it as plain and obvious that that is not the case. They also say that it's plain and obvious that the relevant international law was not automatically adopted as part of Canadian law, and that there are adequate existing remedies, several of which they allowed to proceed to trial. Now, I teach international law as well as civil procedure, and I could go on about all of these on the merits. They're really interesting questions. More importantly for our discussion, however, Justice Brown and Rowe explicitly note why it's appropriate to decide this on a motion to strike. These are pure questions of law particularly the question of whether the corporation could be bound by the relevant international law principle. It may be a novel question, but if the court wouldn't recognize a new tort on the most favorable facts possible, the facts and the pleadings, then in their view, the claim is doomed to fail. Um, they, and they largely rely on the points of there being adequate domestic torts, the relevant international law not being adopted as part of Canadian law, and perhaps most persuasively, that the corporation isn't bound by the relevant international law principle, uh, and that these are all legal questions, and sending them to trial uh, would simply be disproportionate to what is at stake. Well, there's a lot at stake, but it's disproportionate given that we can decide them on the motion to strike. They acknowledge there are times when a court should decline to answer a legal question on a motion to strike, even if it could. Um, I think the best example they give is when the facts alleged are very, very unlikely, but not impossible. Answering the question of law on the basis of very, very unlikely facts risks distorting the law for a pointless purpose. It probably makes it more sense to show the facts are not present, but that's not this case. And mm. the facts of this case are complicated. It would have tied up um, these parties for a long time to establish them and the judge who can't adjudicate other cases. Now, that didn't actually happen in this case because they settled. But that, that may be considered positive. But if it's an unprincipled settlement to avoid legal fees, um, that's more dubious. I mean, noting that the domestic uh, torts were allowed to proceed. Um, and more importantly, putting aside the question of uncluttering the courts, I'd submit it doesn't benefit the public as a whole 
to have this question of law left open unless there's a really good reason for it. Yeah. That itself can potentially cause mischief, and Atlantic Lottery shows that. Um, so Justice Brown and Roe really emphasize the importance of judicial economy and developing the law in determining that it was appropriate to decide part of the case on the motion to strike, even though they agreed with Justice Bella that much of the case could um, proceed. Mm. So, okay, well, that sets out sort of the division between the opinions uh, in NEFSA. Now, what about Atlantic Lottery? Is it, uh, does it sort of follow along those footsteps? Well, I mean, this was a hotly anticipated case by much of the private law bar. And there are lots of thorough summaries on the merits that you can find from many, uh, many of the leading law firms and a great blog post from Suzanne Kyoto at Western Law. Um, so I'll try to briefly summarize to, to put the motion to strike in context because the underlying facts couldn't really be more different than those in Nevson. This was a proposed class action filed in Newfoundland. Um, the defendant is a lottery corporation that approved the uh, operation of video lottery terminals in Newfoundland and Labrador. And the class action asserted that the VLTs were dangerous and inherently deceptive. And they advanced three primary causes of action, something called waiver of tort, which we'll get into, uh, breach of contract and unjust enrichment. For none of the causes of actions did the class seek damages for losses incurred by the class members. Uh, presumably, they thought it'd be too hard to prove. Rather, they sought disgorgement of sums received by the defendant, and they primarily emphasized waiver of tort. Now, what is waiver of tort? It's not what it sounds like. Uh, Brown, former private law scholar, uh, explains it's a very old concept, albeit somewhat of a misnomer, whereby a plaintiff waives his or her tort remedies to get disgorgement remedies that one might otherwise be able to get in contract law, even when there is no contract. So you waive your tort rights to get disgorgement as a remedy. Now, insofar as disgorgement can be an appropriate remedy from time to time, that this is uncontroversial, albeit rare. However, historically, this still required the existence of a tort for the tort remedies to be waived. Can waiver of court be a standalone cause of action? Mm. Some academics have argued that it should be because for many torts, notably negligence, actual loss is part of the cause of action. If the plaintiff can't prove any loss, the plaintiff doesn't get even nominal damages, even when the defendant has breached the standard of care and even when the defendant has gained from breaching the standard of care. So for aiming at behavior modification, which is a valid goal of the private law, right. maybe we should recognize this as a standalone cause of action. But Justice Brown, for unanimous Supreme Court on this point, says no. Um, there are a bunch of reasons he says no that we can get into if you like, um, largely the fact that he's worried that this moves the private law too far away from its compensatory role and can create a perverse incentive for people to rush to the courthouse to get disgorgement. Um, but from a procedural perspective, what was most interesting is why he emphasized this was an appropriate claim to resolve on a motion to strike. Some of these reasons are peculiar to this case, but by no means all of them. First, he said the law of restitution had changed significantly since previous decisions that had decided not to decide this issue. And therefore, much of the area in which this claim was operating was clearer. Second, 
He points out that in 2014, Reiniak was decided, meaning that courts need to look to procedural mechanisms to prevent claims that are doomed to fail from surviving for too long in the civil justice system. He recognized that novel claims may occasionally be recognized. The law is not static, but nor should a claim survive simply because it's novel. And I'm going to quote here because I think it's it's a good quote. He says, it's beneficial and indeed critical to the viability of civil justice and public access thereto that claims, including novel claims, which are doomed to fail, be disposed of at an early stage in the proceedings. This is because such claims present no legal justification for a protracted and expensive trial, end quote. So, and in this vein of the trial not being necessary, he refers later on to a 138-day trial of a waiver of tort claim where Justice Lacks, a very respected and unfortunately deceased Superior Court judge in Ontario, um, presided over a 138-day trial and then concluded that the evidence was simply not helpful in determining the circumstances in which waiver of tort could be a standalone cause of action. This isn't to understate the importance of evidence. The evidence is essential to tell us whether the circumstances in which we will recognize new claims are made out. But when we're debating about whether something even is a cause of action, as in this case, as distinct from whether it's made out, it seems to be adding a lot of noise to what's a question of pure law and what Wyniec says we should try to resolve as soon as we reasonably can. And that kind of bleeds into his third reason to decide this claim on a motion to strike. And I think perhaps it goes into Runnymede's interest in the rule of law. To not decide the issue would to perpetuate legal uncertainty. No Canadian court had recognized waiver of tort as a standalone cause of action. But several had held that it wasn't plain and obvious that it wasn't a standalone cause of action. So the previous cases didn't conclusively decide this one way or the other. So this uncertainty in the law is a pragmatic reason to decide it on a motion to strike. Um, otherwise, we might see another nuisance settlement and we'll be left in legal uncertainty until someone else comes along. Um, and lastly, his fourth reason for deciding this case um, is that in this case, it's central to the um, to the issues. Whereas in a previous case, Microsoft, it was uh, more of a peripheral issue. So those four reasons taken together may mean that the reticence from the majority opinion in Nevson to use a motion to strike um, could be compatible with Atlantic Lottery's willingness. Like they are distinguishable because not all of the criteria were present in Nevson, but it still seems to be part of a trend. Reason number two in particular is now present in all cases, the effects of Reiniac on how we interpret civil procedure. And the question of legal uncertainty is likely to show up pretty frequently. Um, so I think we could see some movement on the availability of the motion to strike as a result of this case. Um, Justice Brown also went to strike the entire claim, um, mm. the unjust enrichment and breach of contract claims. Un unjust enrichment, he held that on the plaintiff's own theory of the case, there was a juristic reason for the enrichment. So there was therefore no unjust enrichment. Uh, more controversially, and this is what led to a dissent from Justice Kerakitsanis, on the breach of contract case, he agreed there might be a claim for breach of contract. Um, there could be an implied contract between the defendant and the plaintiff that the video lottery terminals will be reasonably states, uh, would be reasonably safe. 
but he says it would yield only expectation-based damages or nominal damages, while the class wanted disgorgement damages and or punitive damages. And in his view, these were clearly not available on the pleadings. Um, and he therefore held that while there might be a cause of action for breach of contract, there is no reasonable cause of action in light of the remedies that the class is proceeding or the class is pursuing. Uh, and he is joined like he was in Nevson by Justices Moldaver, Cote, Rowe, and now he has Justice Abella uh, to make it a majority. Um, Justice Kierkegaard-Sanis only dissented on the breach of contract issue. She points out accurately, might I add, uh, that loss isn't an essential element of the breach of contract claim and that we need a trial and evidence in her view uh, before we can say that disgorgement or punitive damages are inappropriate. Justice Brown responds by saying that would be inconsistent with the theory of the case the class is advancing in the pleadings. So what does it mean when we look at Nevson and Great Atlantic or Atlantic Lottery together? Um, the Supreme Court may be liberalizing the ability to use motions to strike to resolve questions of law. It's hard to know um, because there are some unique facts in Atlantic Lottery, but they're not that unique. Uh, so I guess that's a long answer to your question about how the ability to have um, motions to strike to resolve questions of law may be expanding. Hmm. So that, that's, I mean, I find that very interesting that they're moving towards this liberalization, potentially, of motions to strike in, in these cases. I sense uh, in your description and your, your analysis that you're positive, maybe, I'll, I'll put it that way, about the these decisions and the, the trend that they're maybe inculcating in this area of the law. Is that an accurate description? And if so, um, can you kind of hone in on What's like why you think this move is positive? I mean, I think because uh, it moves us in a direction so we can resolve more cases on their merits more quickly, which is good for both keeping the justice system moving, allowing more parties to avail themselves of it, not having to spend too much time or expense in doing so, while also having the bonus effect of developing the law while doing so. And that's a good thing because a static law um, or an unclear law has its own problems. Mm, yes. That, well, and I, and I think, you know, that there's, especially for us in Runnymede, we're always trying to think uh, and map out that balance between legal certainty and, uh, and moving the law forward. I think it's a really interesting meta question about the law, if I can put it that way. So, you know, we, we kind of talk about why do you think this is a positive, uh, this is a positive step in the, representing these cases. Are there any, uh, pitfalls or worries you have about the decisions and the approach that they're introducing? Well, I, first, I do think we need to be careful to confine this to questions of pure law, given the inability to put in any evidence, which I think is a good thing. It keeps the motion simpler. Uh, but I would be concerned that this could get watered down and court may say, well, it's just very, very unlikely these facts will be um, resolved. Whereas I think we need to have this very valuable and appropriate tool in important but narrow circumstances. So I think the courts may have been occasionally too reticent to decide questions of pure law on a motion to strike. I also don't want them deciding questions of fact, unless they at least have affidavit evidence, or maybe if the facts are just absurd and incapable of being proved, 
which the court has acknowledged can be done. And I'm also a little bit torn about a potential asymmetry between when the defendant seeks to change or not change the law and the plaintiff does. I, or in other words, the difference between not changing the law on the motion to strike and choosing to change it. I'll give an example. It's one thing for the court to say, even if everything in your pleading is true, you will not win this case because you haven't pled the elements of the nuisance tort and we're not changing the elements of the nuisance tort. It's another to say, even if everything you say is true, you will win this case because we are going to change the elements of the nuisance tort. Maybe the defendant will show impracticalities of that through its evidence. So maybe we should be more reluctant if the plaintiff is seeking the legal determination than the defendant. But I also don't love treating plaintiffs and defendants in an asymmetrical way here. So I suppose what I'm saying is that my thinking on that point is unresolved. Hmm. Well, that's a that's a very scholarly answer, Gerard. Okay. <laughs> that's a very fair response. So maybe let me push you a little bit and ask, do, do you think, uh, are these decisions, uh, are these cases going to be cases that have an effect over the long term? And if so, what what effect do you think they'll have on the practice of motions to strike going forward? I mean, um, they'll definitely have effects on international human rights law and in when it comes to the remedy of disgorgement. Um, but I think they even will probably on motions to strike. I think it's part of a general trend towards moving away from the traditional trial. Um, earlier this summer, uh, Justice Woods of the Federal Court of Appeal decided a case Harris in Canada and used a motion to strike to resolve a novel charter claim by an individual challenging the constitutionality of cannabis regulations. Didn't explicitly cite the new cases, but I think it's part of a general trend where she says that the facts pled simply couldn't support a Section 7 or Section 15 claim. Hmm. So we're, we're already seeing potentially some, some effect from these decisions. That's interesting. Well, Gerard, uh, I think we've really covered the waterfront here in terms of this, these cases and the, the issues. This is, I mean, we're, I have to say this is the first podcast I think we've done on a private law issue and the way that that issue might affect running meets core concerns. So I, I thank you for your time. Do you have any, uh, final thoughts about the cases or predictions going forward about motions to strike in general? I mean, I guess just a, I think the standard to use a motion to strike, that it's plain and obvious that there's no cause of action, is an appropriate and high threshold. Um, but something can be plain and obvious while also being close mm. um, in the sense that I'm a big baseball fan. And a few years ago when video replay was introduced in baseball, a standard for clear and convincing evidence was installed to overturn a call on a field. Oh. And sometimes... It's very obvious that the ball was a little fair or a little foul in the way the umpire didn't call. Um, but you still overturn the call. And sometimes a judge may say, well, um, if we were going to acknowledge this new tort, these would be the circumstances, but we're not going to acknowledge this new tort. Um, because frankly, as Justice Lacks experienced after 138-day trial, um, that is not necessarily always helpful. Um, and so something can be clear or plain and obvious, even when the facts are as good as they could possibly be for the defendant or for the plaintiff. 
Um, and there are other cases that are messy. There are cases where the runner has slid into second base and you think the umpire got it wrong, but you can't tell because the amount of dirt flying and the number of fielders there. Um, and so you have to just let it stand and let it go through. Um, the fact that you're suspicious is not a reason to use the motion to strike, but the fact that you think it's a close call that we would acknowledge this cause of action or not um, doesn't mean you shouldn't resolve the question of law on the motion to strike, which in Ontario and Manitoba is called a Rule 21 motion. Mm. So. Well, sounds good. That's very, it's very interesting stuff. Uh, I, for one, will be following this closely. And I think for students that are uh, struggling or getting through civil procedure right now, this podcast will be will be very important for them. So we will be sure to, to sell it that way. Uh, I want to just take a moment to thank you, Gerard, uh, for this, your time today to discuss these issues. Again, our, our, for our listeners, our guest today was Gerard Kennedy from the Robson Hall, from Robson Hall at the University of Manitoba. Uh, thank you again, Gerard, for your time today. We really do appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. And for our listeners, we'll be back next month with another episode of Running Mead Radio. Until then, uh, it's Mark Mancini, National Director of the Running Mead Society, signing off. Have a good rest of October and happy Halloween.